What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good morning. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and host of the What to Know podcast show. And I am sitting here in the uh, Le Meridian Hotel just down the street from my office in San Francisco. I have the pleasure of uh, being with a gentleman named Stephen Ibaraki, who is has many titles. Uh, he, I met him through a panel that we did at South by Southwest called EQ in the ER, Building Empathy Through XR with... Um, Anita Bose, who's one of my colleagues, and then Rasu Shrestha, Dr. Rasu Shrestha. Uh, both of these guys are amazing men. And just a little bit of background about Stephen. Um, he's the founder and chairman of Reds Capital. We'll talk a little bit about what he invests in. He's a futurist and serial entrepreneur. You will truly hear the futurist come through as you're listening to him talk. And you know he's probably the founder of a dozen organizations, but a few notable ones, AI for Good, Global Summit, um, he is vice chair of the focus group AI for health, which will be important to our conversation today. Uh, he's the founder of FinTech Ideas Festival, which is why he's in town right now. He's normally in Canada or traveling about the world. Uh, he also, um, y- you said the technology advisory council, that's sort of part of what the, the, um, this umbrella company or organization for the FinTech group. Yes. Yes. I, I, I actually was invited three years ago to helped found uh, um, this idea of a FinTech Ideas Festival, and then also I created a, an advisory council to do that, which is bringing in the top thinkers around the world in different sectors, and, and specifically that can help impact where you know the financial services uh, whole sort of industry we're going, where the technology is going, uh, what's going to happen in terms of the people that are consuming the resources and the services of the financial services industry. And that was back in, I would, the first invitation came in 2015. I formed the, uh, the advisory council in 2016 to advise uh, this group of CEOs, uh, which represented at that time about 92.7 trillion. Can you believe that? It's just such a big That's number. That's a lot of money. <laughs> and, and managed assets. And, and again, to look five and 10 years into the future. I mean, what, what a better way to have some fun, right? To look into the future. And then, and then we helped create this thing called the FinTech Ideas Festival which was held in uh, January 2017, actually at the Bentley Reserve, which is right next door to the hotel we're in. And this is the second edition of it. Uh, and again, looking at things like you know, quantum computing, AI machine learning, and blockchain, and the future of financial services, and the future of work, and all of, all of the big questions that are gonna impact society, and, and industry, and government, and so on. So it's a great coming together of CEOs. Well, it's good background because I think we're going to talk about a lot of those things, particularly as they pertain to health. And it's funny because I told you I came up in the financial services industry and now work in health. Um, I do want to get started, though, just to rewind a little bit. So with all these amazing sort of titles and things you've achieved and having listened to you at South by Southwest, I was really blown away by um, the knowledge base you brought and sort of the vision and the thinking how did you get started? What At what point did you decide? You, I, I don't think someone wakes up one day and says, hey, you know what? Someday I'm going to be a futurist. I think you just are born as an entrepreneur. Ideally, you get to see a lot of things. You need to see a lot of things. You have to take in a lot of data and inputs and then translate that into your strategy. What, you know, what inspired you to head down this path? You know, it's an interesting question. I was always curious. So when I was three and four, uh, I was playing with uh, sort of science experiments. I was uh, designing them on my own. 
I built my own uh, first analog computer when I was 10. <laughs> Not a shocker. <laughs> Which actually had a little bit of AI in it, in a sense, because it, it, it could do things, uh, you know, and so on. So, um, and then, you know, built my first digital computers when I was very young and, and then got into the whole computing industry. In terms of my passion, I would say it's my parents. You know, they all were big on sort of giving back, uh, looking at the world in a bigger way, uh, and then actually seeing how you can make a contribution to it, to progress the world, the culture, the society, and also to be very inclusive and, and think about people who don't have uh, sort of the fortunate uh, conditions that we have here in North America and, and uh, try to create programs or instigate programs or be catalysts for programs that can help different communities uh, wherever they are in the world and in whatever their conditions are. So that, that if you look at one thing that always drives me, it's about giving value back and to all of the different sort of programs that are out there and a, and a good one are, for example, right now is the UN 17 Sustainable Development Goals because it's about, you know, better climate, uh, better ecosystems on the land and the marine ecosystems, smart cities, ending poverty and hunger, having digital or diversity, uh, digital transformation, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it covers really the whole span of how you can help the planet better. But I was war uh, born that way. My parents infused that into me. So that's where I come from. So you, unlike most people, don't just get to think and ponder. You actually get to invest in this. Uh, talk a little bit about you know what you do as a entrepreneur and a venture capitalist, and the ability to not just speak at conferences and share these ideas, but actually invest in some of the technologies and companies that are changing the world. Well, can you imagine right now? There's probably somewhere between six and seven million sort of viable startups in the world today. We actually are the, we have the ability to kind of have that filtered and I would estimate to see the best one out of 100,000 because our footprint is so large and we sit across all of the big global communities. So maybe just to give you a little bit of background, just myself personally, I have chair, founder and board roles are called business and finance, serial entrepreneurship global computing science organizations, UN innovation programs, industry organization and think tanks like the, the group here, the CEOs here, and, and uh, the, the top summits of, of which either I founded or I have some kind of influence and so on, not just myself. And then you look at you know, the, the 30 advisors and uh, partners and general partners of Reds Capital, all of them have their respective relationships as well. So when I say there's six or seven million sort of viable startups up there, we literally get the best of the best of the best. But we also invest in, the, in terms of what's going to provide the biggest returns, but we also look at you know, what kind of impact they're going to have on the planet you know, on a global scale. Are they scalable? Are they going to move the, the needle forward in a meaningful way? And that's why we've been investing in things like blockchain or artificial intelligence and, and so on, or anything that we think is transformative uh, and, and can be scaled to not just uh, developed countries, but also developing countries. And where we can get uh, you know, fairly quick metrics uh, uh, very, 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 uh, within a short time period. One of the other targets is, is that when we invest, we want to make sure that we can help that company in some way because of the relationships we have globally or uh, because of the penetration we have in the different marketplaces. And then if, to give you an example, some of the companies we invested in, one is called Toda. Um, they created a protocol 
that can do sort of millions of transactions per second at sort of one-tenth the cost of anything else out there, can scale across all of the mobile phones in the marketplace today. It can be used in virtually every conceivable way that you can think of, and it's a blockchain protocol, so it could be used for uh, uh, managing land, uh, voter rights, it can be used for doing financial transactions, it can be used in healthcare, um, it could be used in any kind of governmental sort of identity system. The list goes on and on and on because it's, it's a very fundamental level of technology of which anything else can ride on top of it. Uh, another one that we've invested is in healthcare, and it's about e-prescriptions and sort of tying in pharmacies to doctors to uh, uh, consumers and so on and doing it in a way that's faster, more reliable, trustworthy. Uh, it can be used to manage insurance claims very, very quickly and so on. Uh, uh, another blockchain technology is in the insurance areas as well, almost creating a, a marketplace for reinsurance so that any player can uh, kind of participate in that fashion. Or uh, one of the ones uh, is in um, this whole area of uh, artificial intelligence. They've created a new kind of artificial intelligence that can almost think like a human being in many instances, doesn't require a lot of data. Um, and yet, it, you can have a conversation with it, it can extrapolate, it can do inductive reasoning, abstract reasoning, and so on. And, and, and so those are the kinds of things that we see and, and we go through a very a careful process, but ultimately we think that it's going to make the planet in a better way, and no matter whether you have resources or you don't have resources. So. Well, it's a good um, segue back into what we were talking about with the South by Southwest panel and this idea of creating empathy. And it's one of the things that I think both you and Dr. Shrestha talked about is all this technology is great, but without sort of that human empathy side, um, it falls short or even worse, you know, we run the risk of it going amok. I do want to start with something that you started off with that was, um, it was a good ground set or a uh, background setting for the, the panel. You talked about us living today in what you called Society 5.0 or the fourth industrial revolution. And you talked about three clusters that really sort of underpin that. Can you walk us back through what those three clusters are and give just a few examples of each? Well, you know, it's interesting. The World Economic Forum came out with this idea in Klaus with the, you know, the fourth industrial revolution. We're well now underway into the fourth industrial revolution to the point where I call it Society, or the Japanese call it Society 5.0, but I call it the Fifth Machine Age, Unlimited X Revolution. So I call it the Fifth Machine Age because it's, it integrates so many different aspects of every part of the world today. So it's, it's almost like a, a generation ahead of the fourth, and that's the fifth. I call it the Unlimited X Revolution uh, because the UN Secretary General last year talked about Generation Unlimited ones who will have the ability to really influence and have impact in every conceivable meaningful way because of the advent of technology. And, and I use the X because there's always that unknown factor, the unintended consequences and so on and where this is going. So the fourth industrial revolution is now Society 5.0 or the fifth machine age unlimited X revolution. It's in three clusters. The biological, such as with uh, 3D or 4D printing, and as you know, we can now print tissues. Uh, and that technology is just getting better and better and better. There's also um, 
uh, you know, on the, or I should say on the physical side with the uh, 4D printing. There's also the 20 billion Internet of Things devices. These are the sensors that are in your phones, in your cars, discrete devices that are attached everywhere, and this is just increasing. That's going to be growing to about 40 billion in the next three to four years. And of course, that has huge implications on the healthcare side. Uh, can you imagine all these sensors monitoring who you are, what you're doing, and so on? We, we can talk a little bit more about that. Um, so that's, on the, that's one cluster, the physical. Uh, another cluster, digital transformation. That is the integration of digital technology in every aspect of our lives, including government, industry, academia, media, in society. It's very pervasive. Even in developing countries, they're leapfrogging by adopting later generation technologies because they don't have to worry about, you know, uh, legacy tech and so on. And for, ex for example, Africa is actually leading in mobile payments. They are the most advanced in the world. Rwanda is number one in drone technology because they can leapfrog and so on. So, so that's the digital transformation. And it's really now, I would say, more than 50% of global GDP. So let's say global GDP is about um, $80 trillion roughly. Uh, uh, you know, the digital transformation is over 50% of that if, if you look at where all the trends are going. So that's the digital side. And the last part is biological and that the final cluster. And of course, that is uh, clear implications in healthcare. Um, biological such as, as cr uh, CRISPR genetic editing, this thing that's been out for a few years. And what's kind of scary is, you know, you heard the news last year where the genetic editing was done on um, these embryos became babies and and I and uh, you know there's a gene called the CCR5 gene was edited and what are the implications of that the implications are well in at least in animal studies it sound it sounds like maybe there's enhancements of cognitive capability or even memory well potentially this may happen here with these children who are going to continue and and if you get into germline editing that means then it, it can be inherited right so are, are we creating now a a new sort of line of human beings that has enhanced cognition, or, or maybe it won't express itself in the way it has in animal studies. Maybe it'll ex express itself in another way. So, you know, what are the implications of that? The thing is, the door is open, right? Even though there's an outcry, but it's been done. Uh, there's also uh, uh, cloning that's uh, happened. For example, in China, they cloned primates last year, which means, you know, humans are possible. Uh, what's probably stopping is, you know, some of these ethical questions, right? And then there's these synthetic genomes they're creating. They're, they're doing it in labs right now, very simple life forms. But you know then it, you can extrapolate that, that humans would be possible. And in fact, um, a number about two years ago out of Harvard, uh, a researcher indicated, you know what, we're going to be able to create a synthetic genome of a, of a human being. He's maybe pulled back a little bit from that, but he was saying maybe for about $90 million. Can you imagine that in 10 years? a fully synthetic human being. I mean, you know, so so that just doesn't apply to humans, it applies to animals and plants as well. <laughs> what are the implications, right? So Yeah, it's it's a brave new world and all these movies that we've watched for the last twenty or thirty years that seem so futuristic, it's a little more than a little scary to think that they're uh all coming true. I do want to turn back a little bit to the less scary uh, which is, you, you mentioned some advancements in healthcare, and I actually was a little bit astounded, and I think you were too, by the time frame. These came out of, if I'm remembering this correctly, the World Economic Forum survey, and you had talked about healthcare, which right now is a lagging industry. I think you said it was in the bottom third in terms of its technological advancement, but 
Um, there's some fascinating stats that you talked about, the growth of things like big data and biotechnology, and you're the master of the stats. So maybe you could rattle a few of those off and just talk about over the next three years, how some of these things impact the healthcare industry. Right. So again, I want to give credit to the World Economic Forum, and they came up with a jobs report in uh, last year in September from 2018 to 2022. So you're looking at predictions in the next three years. I also want to pull back and, and also say that uh, some of the stats all, all, uh, come from CB Insights. I really recommend them as well as uh, having really, really good data. And, and to the audience, I'd recommend those uh, two areas. To we, we can link to that in the blog post that wraps around the podcast. So CB Insights and the World Economic Forum. So the, in this jobs report, it's quite a remarkable report. What they did is they surveyed uh, 12 industries uh, involving something like, I don't know, 15 million people employed um, in those industries and the countries represented, maybe representing about 70% of GDP. It's a, it's a great, a great study. I recommend it. They cover healthcare and some of the numbers in healthcare. Now, keep in mind, please go to the original report. Uh, you know, I'm just going from memory from reading it. So, uh, so they have a figure, something like 87% uh, adoption in the next three years of big data. I mean, that's quite remarkable, right? 87% uh, uh, adoption of biotechnology, 80% adoption of machine learning. I mean, you know, 73% adoption of technology wearables and cloud computing, 67% adoption of blockchain technology. And that's the underlying technology behind uh, cryptocurrencies, but evolving way beyond and, and pretty much in every use case of where it could be used. And particularly in healthcare, there's a number of areas where it could be uh, quite applicable. 67% um, uh, adoption of the internet of things. Uh, uh, you know, 67% adoption of encryption. I mean, you know, it's kind of wild, you know. And, and then going further into the numbers is something like, uh, uh, you know, 53% adoption of other kinds of technologies, um, like uh, 3D printing. Now, I talk, I talk about 4D printing, which is this ability to uh, print things that will evolve with time as well, once they're printed. And then... Uh, 47% adoption of non-stationary, uh, let's say, net, uh, or is it stationary or non-stationary robots, and uh, and 40% uh, adoption of of uh, non-humanoid robots. So you know these robots that are roaming the hospitals and so on. But even things like 33% um, adoption of quantum computing. I mean, that's wild. This is a new kind of computing that works at the subatomic level. That could be perhaps a thousand times, maybe a million times more capable than the fastest supercomputer today. Well, and I think in your talk, you actually mentioned there's one even further, right? The super Turing is, if I'm getting that correct, and how that may change the game yet again and make, you know, make it even faster. So maybe you'll chime in on that too. Sure. In fact, we've been tracking this. And in fact, I spoke about the super Turing uh, model uh, at this YPO, this Young Presidents Organization conference that I uh, spoke at uh, just a few weeks ago. And and I also mentioned during the South by Southwest panel, so uh, A.M. Turing created this sort of model of all computers and uh, and essentially computers are based on his model. He was working on something more advanced but he wasn't able to finish it. Um, there's another researcher, uh, Havas uh, Singelman and Sontag, they uh, wrote a paper a number of years ago uh, about super-tiering, something that exceeds what uh, all of these sort of uh, 
capabilities that we have now, but in theory. And, and what that means is that if, if in some way you were able to instantiate that theory into practice, into hardware, you could have something that's more capable than the fastest classical computers or more capable than even quantum computing. It, it can do a new kind of computing that those uh, two you know, styles of computing cannot do, and that's really interesting. And there's people now working on that hardware aspect. Uh, I mean, I can't talk too much more about it, but to us it looks uh, very, very interesting because it, in essence, can you imagine a phone my phone right now is an Apple, but it has an Atoll bionic chip that can, I, I believe the cost is something like $72 for that chip. It could do five trillion operations per second, right? And it has some AI capability and so on. Now contrast that to 2012 when Andrew Ng and Jeff Dean at Google created this thing, uh, this Google Brain project, and you know over these thousands and thousands of computers, they were able to image things like cats. and recognize them through this uh, sort of machine learning uh, artificial intelligence system. Can you imagine what the cost of that system was? It'd be in the millions and millions. Now my bionic chip in my phone, the A12 can do more. It's much, much faster. Can you imagine now having a phone that has digital standard AI machine learning technology due to certain kinds of things that's really good at, other kinds of digital technology like calculator functions that it's really good at, but then having this other super Turing chip in my computer or in my my um, cell phone but doesn't require data learns on its own it can solve problems like what we call NP hard problem problems that are so computationally hard that it can't be done even with quantum computers or supercomputers can you imagine having that and something you put in your pocket and can you imagine having that in two years or three years time if you have this kind of computing, that means that all of the parameters and biomarkers and all of the indicators to manage aging is such a complex problem, you can't solve it today. You could solve it. Or some of the problems associated with mapping, you know, some of the genes with, uh, uh, you know, cancer and so on, which is a computationally very difficult problem, you could solve it. Or, uh, you know, drug discovery, where, you know, it could take uh, several years to do sort of the, the investigation part about the molecules and the protein folding. If you can use these new technologies and do it in days and maybe even hours versus years, the implications that'll have, I mean, it'll be so far-reaching in healthcare, financial services, every conceivable industry that you can think of. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things I know that uh, came up during the conversation that was intriguing to me, and then I'd love to get into this conversation around aging, is um, Dr. Shrestha mentioned that right now we're data rich and information poor. And I think based on uh, connectivity, so you know, we're moving into the 5G realm, chip speed, and then the computing power that is enabled by these technologies like quantum computing and now the super touring. Uh, you now have the abilities to do things you've never been able to do before. And what would have taken weeks, months, years, you can now do in days. And so you can sort of run trials much faster. Segwaying into the aging piece, um, and I do want to ask you sort of a thought-provoking question about that after, but during the discussion, we did talk a little bit about aging and sort of some of the things that are actually taking place right now, particularly being led by biotech, where we're able to start to at least figure out what causes aging and how we could either stop it, reverse it, slow it down. Maybe you could uh, you know, dig into that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I mean there, there, there's quite a bit of data out there. And, and again, I recommend CB Insights. They publish quite a few um, reports on 
all of the tech that's applied to um, aging and uh, where it's going, uh, what the current state of uh, research is. Um, so let me sort of back up, and I call this ACCC. Uh, We're in a period of hyper automation, hyper time compression in the, in the emergence of these new innovations. So things that used to take years can be done in now uh, weeks and months. Uh, we have also this idea of, of uh, convergence of all of these different areas, not just technology, it's just every conceivable domain is connected in some way. And then this hyper-connectivity and computational uh, power that's coming to bear. I use the acronym sort of ACCC to represent that. So earlier you talked about uh, you know healthcare and being the bottom third. So McKinsey Global came out with a report and they have this sort of digital index and uh, this is uh, one a few years ago but you know they had healthcare maybe in the bottom four out of something like 22 different categories can you imagine that how you know uh, along the same lines as maybe agriculture and, and some areas of transportation which are which are uh, you know not uh, maybe a little bit more lagging in terms of the use of all of these advanced technologies now let's get then into uh, healthcare and aging a specific aging problem you know, one of the problems right now that's, um, you know, everybody's trying to address in aging is there's just so many different factors coming out all the time. And, and so many that it's, it's very, very difficult to manage or to try to get a handle on it. So you, you really have to combine a, a variety of technologies. Biotechnology is one where I indicated something like 87% <coughs> excuse me, adoption forecast in the next three years. Another is uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, machine learning being a kind of artificial intelligence, and then all of this genomic sort of research or omics uh, data collection that's occurring, and so it's a convergence of all of those. Now, within t uh, in terms of aging, there's probably four uh, major areas of aging. If you can control it, then you can, you can manage aging, and then you can all also manage all of the, the diseases that are sort of associated with or chronic problems that are associated with aging, right? So one, is, one of it is uh, senescence and, and this idea that uh, cells age and then they just lose the ability to divide and, and then you have these uh, dead cells in, in our bodies and the body has problems sometimes clearing that, uh, those cells and it gets worse when you get older. Uh, you have this idea of telomeres, this, this little structure at the end and, and it gets shorter and shorter with aging. Uh, the more the cells divide, so if you can manage that in some way. There's these, you know, sort of these free radical um, uh, um, damage that's being done and uh, this idea of reactive oxygen species and, and the impact that has on the aging process. And then, um, you know, this idea of uh, DNA methylation, you know, you have the, the DNA structure and these methyl groups attach and then they impair its function in some way. So if you, if you can manage some of those, uh, or all of them, then of course you have at least some uh, progress in terms of allowing people to live longer and healthier, more productive lives. So there are companies that are working in this area. And for example, there's one company that's working on the biotechnology side. In fact, there's a lot of companies, but um, where what they're doing is they're they're trying to manage that senescent side. You know, if we have cells that are uh, senescent, let's clear them out. Um, there's another, uh, or there's companies working in the area of the DNA methyl methylation side, you know. Is there some way we can prevent that or manage this, these methyl groups from attaching and kind of disrupting the DNA? 
Um, there's also machine learning and artificial intelligence being applied by other groups, uh, for example, in Alzheimer, uh, by, by actually mining all of the omics data, like proteomics data, the gene uh, genomics data, and so on. And in fact, there's an uh, Estonian uh, biobase of donors. And looking at that to see, you know, are there certain markers in there that we can use as a basis then to attack this problem? So. Or, or even having uh, using genetic uh, technology where you can sniff out um, these senescent uh, cells and then use another kind of mechanism to clear them out and so on. So it's quite exciting in that uh, you know we're getting a much better, better handle on this. And from a venture capitalist, of course, we're we're very excited because it's going to change the world and make it better. Yeah, and by the way, there are a lot of people that are aging in the world, you know, with our 7.5 billion people and growing. I do have a philosophical question that I did tee up to you at the beginning, and that is, I've always wondered, you know, as we sort of extend our life on Earth, is it something where, you know, was this meant to be? I mean, there are all these diseases that sort of, as we solve one, it seems like another one crops up, and so... Is it like we're trying to play God and we're trying to extend life where maybe it wasn't meant to be? Or it's this highly enlightened level that we live on now where it's like, oh, we have all these tools and knowledge and power so we can extend our life and maybe eventually we extend our life infinitely, right? Maybe we transform from human being to, you know, cyborg. I'm doing that in, you know, air quotes, but we could replace parts of us with, you know, technology and uh, or reprint them as you talked about so theoretically we don't ever have to die if we chose not to so maybe indulge me on that one and, and give me your point of view you know it's a great question in fact uh, I use a term called castle to explain this so c-a-s-a-l so or castle and and what it represents is that there are today four forms of life or at least some evidence of it right so the, key, uh, the C in castle stands for uh, classic, the modern form of our species like you and I, who were born you know, 20 years ago or 10 years ago or five years ago or 50, 60 years ago and so on. And we live our lives and we've got this sort of expected lifespan and, and you know, we're seeing the ravages of, of living right on our bodies. Um, there's the augmented life forms that already exist today. And in fact, there's a lot of startups working in this space as well. Augments are, are people who have implants. And uh, for example, uh, I'm part of a think tank created by Volkswagen Audi. And at our first meeting, we actually invited people who had implants. Like one gentleman has this um, implant in his head. And in fact, I just saw him a few weeks ago at this uh, conference, uh, YPO Edge, and, and he spoke. So, um, you know, what are the implications of that? There was a, actually a gentleman who had a, a, a totally art, articulating artificial arm, uh, which was in research, but it was, I could, you, I'm telling you, it, it was real. It was, it was so realistic, right? We actually brought in uh, robots that could play uh, jazz in real time. So, but the augmented side, you know, where humans can work with, have implants uh, alongside technology, and what, what are the implications of all of that? I even say I am augmented, and in fact, Aaron, I was showing you earlier before we started this uh, chat, I had to tune my phone because the, the phone connects up to hearing aids, and my hearing aids will then adapt to the environment, and I wanted to tune just to, so it listens to you and not the surrounding noise and so on. And then, of course, there's new applications that are coming out of AI machine learning 
so it'll sort of sample what's happening, know that I'm talking to you, actually remove all of these other sort of surrounding noises and so on. So those are the augmented side. So now we've got the, uh, the classics, the augmented, now the S for, so we got synthetic. Uh, and I talked about this already, uh, early synthetic genomes appearing in labs, and I, I believe humans are possible within the foreseeable future. And then I talked about clones are already possible, in my opinion, and then also uh, this idea of genetic, ed it's already happening, right? And the implications of all of that. And then we get um, um, artificial, you know, the, kind of the early work that's being done with uh, these uh, sort of humanoid robots, uh, you know, a lot of some controversy now around uh, Sophia, but uh, I think it's really interesting the, the advances, the articulation that Sophia can do. This robot from Hanson uh, Robotics, but there's many other projects around the world, and there's projects working on um, giving uh, AI or machine learning common sense. So right now, I can show a three-year-old a cup. And that three-year-old can generalize from the cup to any other object. I don't have to give it, you know, 500,000 images of a cup to train how to, you know, articulate and move with a cup. So there's a lot of work in AI machine learning to be able to generalize from one specific task to something more generalized. Or your, your AI machine learning system that detects spam and so on in your, in your phone uh, or your credit card and so on. That's all it can do. It can't do other things. Well, let's, let's see if it can generalize and do other things. So the one that drives your car, let's see if it can generalize and do other things. A lot of work being done on that. Uh, one researcher I'd like to point out, and in fact, I, I um, interviewed him for this series of conferences where I'm keynoting right now, is Pedro Domingos. Pedro Domingos has won the uh, Data Science Award, which is kind of the highest award uh, or innovation award in data science, which is like the Nobel of data science. He's won this paper awards. Uh, a number of years ago, he came out with this book called The Master Algorithm, where he profiled the five major schools of machine learning or artificial intelligence, how they work, how they're being applied. And then he said, you know what, if you can amalgamate them in some way, you'll create this thing called a master algorithm. And this book became a bestseller. And in fact, uh, last year, he's the only researcher that was spotlighted as somebody to watch by both President Xi of China and Bill Gates at the same time because of his work. Anyways, uh, last year, late, he's made some progress, and some people are calling it the sixth paradigm. The sixth paradigm meaning, you know what, he's moving closer to this idea of an artificial general intelligence, something that could do more than something very specific and something that doesn't require as much data and so on, right? So, um, I mean, I'm pretty excited about it because can you imagine the implications of it to humankind? and? Uh, the implications to life and to healthcare as well. If you can have something that, that integrates fully, is, is your um, assistant and more. And it'll influence every aspect of what you do and even as a child to when you grow up. And then that gets into then human life, right? What, I already said that castle exists in some form, you know, classic, augmented, synthetic, and artificial. And then there's all of this work on artificial general intelligence. What does that mean to human beings? It's going to mean that we're going to be living in a period of transition. Maybe not so much myself because I'm, I'm, I'm sort of the older generation, but your, your children are going to be uh, working in a society where you're going to have fairly intelligent machines. You're going to have synthetic life forms. 
You're going to have people who have all sorts of implants so that they're enhanced in some way. Just a few, a few weeks ago, uh, a number of researchers were able to implant nanoparticles in mice so that they could get infrared vision. And, and they feel that this can be done in humans as well. Well, if you can give them infrared vision, why not ultraviolet vision? And you know, and you know Google and others are working on uh, different kinds of devices that you can wear and so on that can augment and give you superior capability, right? Or Microsoft with their HoloLens, and you know, they're trying to continue to mini miniaturize that, and they came with HoloLens too, again, just a few weeks ago. Uh, can you imagine the implications of that, where you have everything you know, overlaid on top? So that's the reality. It, we're going to have a period of transition where you're going to have old life forms, classics, augments, synthetics, artificial. What does that mean to us as classics, but what does that mean to your children who are not really there uh, fully augmented? Well, listening to you talk, it's, uh, it leaves me equal parts uh, titillated and uh, terrified. Um, I do want to bring us home, and I'm going to ask you two sort of more traditional questions. Um, the first is, and I'm very interested to hear this, but I like to ask all the guests, tell us something about yourself that maybe people don't know that you're willing to share. You know, that's, that's a hard one. I write poetry, um, but the only person that's ever read my poetry is my wife. <laughs> so... So, um, so not many. Is that because you won't share it more widely, or she's the only one that will tolerate your poetry? You, you know, it's it's a, a sort of private expressions of my caring and, and love for her. Her name is Colleen. So, um, so that's nobody knows that. Uh, a lot of people don't know that uh, I have a, a very early interest in the brain, and I studied it quite a bit, and uh, and. Uh, you know, did some interesting work uh, on my own in, in terms of, for a number of um, medical reasons. And uh, maybe a third item is I used to be a martial artist, I used to, you know, but, uh, you know, I haven't done that for a while, but, you know, it used to be an active part of my life. Knowing who you are a little bit and the discipline, that last piece doesn't surprise me too, too much. But thank you for sharing that. Uh, and I love the fact that you do this for your wife. That's very touching and tender. Last question I'm going to ask you is about a book, and I know that this is a personal one to you because it's actually a book that's coming out versus one that you've read, but you have read it because you had to write it, or you had to read it for the foreword, which you wrote. So tell us what the book is and what it's about. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating book. There's no other one like it. It's called Own the AI Revolution, and it's written by Neil Sohoda, who uh, actually worked on the underlying technology, you know, where... Uh, the Watson team beat Jeopardy. He was part of some of that. Uh, he's, uh, uh, he actually managed um, global business development also for, for the Watson team and so on. And, and he's been advising the UN. For example, there's this, uh, it is historically the most successful summit on AI, interdisciplinary, it's called the AI for Good Global Summit. He's been part of that, success of that, advising the UN in that program. And his uh, co-author is Michael Ashley, who's a best-selling author and a keynote speaker and so forth. What it does is it captures all of the key factors that you need to know if you're going to implement AI machine learning into any kind of business, like you know what kind of tools, what kind of data you should have, what are some of the key areas that you need to look at. It is the most practical book that's out there, the most consumable, plus the interviews all of the top people in the world about all of these areas as well. And again, it's called Own the AI, uh, 
AI revolution, excuse me, and then I was fortunate to be invited to write the forward or the introduction for it, and it was such a pleasure to write for something like this. It's already in pre-order, by the way, on Amazon. So. Well, it sounds awesome, and, and this is the point where we will end, even though I could keep this conversation going for another hour. Um, this is Aaron Stroud, CMO of W2O, host of the What to Know podcast. Uh, I'm sitting here and had a fascinating morning discussion with uh, Stephen Ibaraki, who is the founder and chairman of Red's Capital, futurist serial entrepreneur. Stephen, thank you so much for carving out some time in your morning to uh, speak with me and the audience that's listening in. Well, it was such a pleasure. It's really awesome. I mean, Aaron, uh, kudos to you. You're an amazing executive and you're leading such a great program. And what you did at South by Southwest with uh, all of the healthcare sessions and so, they were the best of the, that entire uh, conference series. So uh, again, congratulations to your team and just a great team. Well, thank you, Stephen. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at whogroup.com slash whattoknow.